Aloha from North Kohala, Hawaii. This is Holly Allgood. You're listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest today, Dr. Karen Johnson, who's a functional medicine expert. And we're going to hear some of the stories of her life, how she got to be a functional medicine expert, and what else has been important. So, Karen, we usually start with talking about where you grew up. Can you tell us where you grew up and what your life was like growing up? Well, I grew up in northern Saskatchewan, <coughs> way up north, uh, very cold and uh, very short summers. I was on a mixed farm, um, went to a very small school. Um, What's a mixed farm? Mixed farm is cattle and our beef and grain. So my father raised several hundred head of cattle and then grew uh, wheat, barley, oats, rapeseed, or they call it canola here in Canada. They, I think they still call it, I don't know, I haven't paid attention. I think they still call it rapeseed. Um, so that's what a mixed farm is. Thank you. So tell us more. So uh, after I left, um, finished high school, then I went to the University of Saskatoon in Saskatchewan, something everybody likes to say. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a large university? Yeah, it's very large. Uh, it's, well, there's two campuses. There's one in, in Saskatoon and one in Regina. And I started in pharmacy. And um, I was very young at the time. And uh, fortunately for me, the first year after pharmacy, I um, had a um, job. You could get a job working um, in your area of training or future uh, training um, for the summer. And the um, I don't remember if it was the government or the university paid for part of your salary. So I, I got to work in a pharmacy after one year of pharmacy. And... Uh, Oh, I won't, I won't go into the details, but um, the pharmacist um, basically let me run the shop. <laughs> after, as a student. Uh, yeah, as a student. Um, he, had, he had problems that I, I won't go into. But um, after that, I decided that literally I said I wanted to um, write the prescriptions rather than fill them. So then I changed um, my um, specialty and went into pre-med and then went into medical school and did my medical school training in Saskatoon and postgraduate training there as well. So can you tell us, uh, so most of us listening now are from Havi, Hawaii, can you tell us a little bit of the difference between Saskatoon and Havi? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's huge. I mean, Saskatoon is a you know, it's a large city, not by American standards, but um, and it's a university town. So, you know, that in itself makes it a very unique um, city. Um, it's got a river running through it, and um, it services a very large agricultural community surrounding it because um, the majority of um, industry at the time was farming. Um, they were getting into um, potash mining, so there was some mining going on as well, but still mostly farming, so rural. Um, and um, I would say it was not really very white because uh, Canada has um, very different immigration policies. So there were a lot of people from the United Kingdom. So that included India, South Africa, um, 
primarily those countries, some from the UK, even my teachers in high school uh, were from India and South Africa. You know, it was their opportunity to get immigrate and get into another country. So there was that large population. And then there's also a very significantly large Native American population, or I think they call them First Nation now is what they're called in Canada, in, in Saskatoon. So it's, it's rather diverse. And uh, you must have been a good student to become a pharmacy major or then a pre-med. Yeah, I was a good student. <laughs> you through, so did you go to public schools throughout? Mm -hmm. or? Yeah, mm -hmm. I went to uh, public school throughout uh, grade school and high school. Did you think your schools were especially good, or were you just an especially good student? Um, no, my schools weren't very good at all. I had a few good teachers. In fact, the best teachers were the ones from uh, South Africa and um, India. Um, they were really top-notch teachers, but I, I basically, um, honestly, I played hooky a lot of the time and just then did my work at home um, and studied at home because I didn't feel the teachers were um, giving me what I needed. I don't know. That, you know. That's the attitude of a teenager, of course. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but how did you get from Saskatoon to Javi? What were the steps in between? Oh, it was a, a long road. So um, when I finished my medical school training, there was an ad in one of the newspapers in Saskatoon for a company that was looking for physicians to move to underserved areas in the United States. Um, so um, I um, went um, and interviewed with them, and um, then they had me go down to various places in Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming, I believe, were the three states, um, and um, look at various locations. And um, the most interesting one was one in Green River, Wyoming. Um, that's in the southwest uh, corner of the state along Interstate 80. So um, my husband at the time and I moved. He was a physician as well. Uh, well, yeah, he's a retired physician now. Um, moved to Green River, Wyoming, with a goal of spending two years there. Well, we spent five, um, and um, it's, it was a drastic change from Saskatchewan because it's high mountain um, desert, 6,200 feet, uh, pretty much all mining and some um, shepherds. You know, there were a lot of Basque uh, sheep herders living in the area, um, and it was dry. I love greenery, and I couldn't grow much there. It's cold, windy. Uh, very short growing season, probably even worse than Saskatchewan because of the elevation. So I then started looking for uh, job opportunities on the West Coast. And um, I found one, several opportunities in Oregon. And um, there were a couple in Eastern Oregon that I didn't even look at because I jokingly said I kept driving until I ran out of sagebrush. And then I started looking for a new place to move to because I'd had enough sagebrush in, in Wyoming. Uh, so I ended up then joining um, a physician in Salem, Oregon. And we started West Salem Family Practice, um, the three of us, uh, my um, former husband and um, this physician and myself. Uh, that was probably 
I don't know, 30-some years ago. So we founded that, and it grew um, to, by the time I left and moved to Hawaii, I was there for 30, I think 32 years. Um, it had grown to um, seven physicians and three um, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants. So it was a really um, big practice and still is a thriving practice. Um, and then I wanted to move to warmer, greener climates. So that's right, sort of was my journey, and that's how I ended up in Hawaii. So let's go back a couple of steps. You said that you obviously like to grow things. Was that something growing up on a farm, or tell me about how you got into, interested in growing? Uh, I've just always loved growing my own food. I mean, I'm interested in health and nutrition, and... Um, I think there must be a gene in our family that likes to grow things. My sister has the same um, passion, uh, my father, my mother. I mean, so it was something that just was part of growing up. And what about, I know you have an interest in horses. Where did that happen? That started as well growing up. I think, I, I don't remember when I first rode a horse. I was probably too young. I can remember horses... Um, my mother said, these horses must, I must have only been two years old when I remember seeing these horses. I don't think I was riding them at the time. So I've been with horses all my life and brought my horses from Oregon to Hawaii as well. So they're, they're part of family. So is that where you maybe focused on the horses most or did you start riding as a child or what, what's your riding background? No, I started riding as a child, um, just trail riding. You know, it was pretty casual. My father was one of those people that, you know, you, he was self-taught, so he felt, you know, children should be self-taught as well. Maybe that was why I, I self-taught myself through high school. I don't know. But um, then after I realized I really did need some more formal education to do the kind of riding I wanted to do, when I lived in Oregon, then I became very involved with a lot of dressage training. So I um, then did um, many, many clinics, hosting them with different dressage instructors and did training for probably, well, most of the time I lived in Oregon. And are you still involved with horses? Yes. I have three horses. Nice. So let's go back to... Um, the story of how you got from Oregon to Havi, Hawaii. Um, well, originally, um, my intention was to move to Hawaii and retire. And um, my husband and I bought land uh, on High School Road or Hanamakau Road. We had bought 20 acres. And we were going to build a house. And then... That was probably 12 years ago we bought that land. Um, and then when we moved here, my husband had designed a house we were going to build. Uh, we bought a house to live in in the interim in Kohala Ranch. And um, over the uh, few months after we moved here, we realized for a number of reasons that building just wasn't really what we wanted to do. So we started looking for um, a residence and um, then bought the house we live in now in Puakia Bay Ranch and sold the land on Hanamakau Road. So that was how we got here. But uh, in the meantime, after we bought the land, I became involved in 
integrative medicine um, because, as I said, I was going to retire when I moved to Hawaii, and that has not happened. Um, so I did um, training with um, the University of Arizona, the Integrative Medicine Fellowship with Dr. Andrew Weil. Probably many people know him. So I did that, and um, during that training, uh, Dr. Taroni Lodog was the director of the fellowship, and she's a master herbalist. I think she was on um, President Clinton's um, alternative medicine um, panel, and she is um, just an amazing woman, and she was offering a course in herbalism. So during that time, I also did a two-year um, training program with her in herbalism where we would go to her ranch in New Mexico and do wild crafting and, you know, identify plants. And it was a great deal of fun. She's just a darling person. Um, and then I um, somehow, through all of this, realized that I needed more training. And I became involved in functional medicine, which was um, sort of um, an add-on to integrative medicine would be the best way. So maybe can we can back up and you can explain what is integrative medicine? So integrative medicine, the training that I did in the fellowship and the board certification I did in it is looking at all the various aspects of medicine throughout the world and how we can pull the best parts of those um, systems of medicine into um, what we know as physicians. So we study um, traditional Chinese medicine. You can do additional training in acupuncture if you want. We study Ayurvedic medicine. We study homeopathy. We study you know, mind-body medicine. So it's looking at many, many, and herbal, great deal of herbal medicine, a lot of nutrition, uh, lifestyle medicine, how um, energy fields in the body affect us. Um, so that's um, integrating, hence the name, all of these different um, schools or aspects of medicine into our um, conventional Western medicine training. And how does functional medicine differ from integrative? So functional medicine um, takes it a step further in that it's looking upstream for the underlying cause of many diseases. And we do a lot of testing that um, is um, not typically done in conventional medicine. Um, and we have uh, training that um, isn't often done in, in conventional medicine as far as how to um, personalize each um, uh, patient's problems uh, rather than in conventional medicine, uh, we have a lot of algorithms. So, you know, if you've got this disease, you look up on um, various sites and it'll say these are the tests you should order and these are, you know, the treatments, you know, if you make this diagnosis. Um, and they don't look so much for what may be underlying those uh, chronic diseases. So I, I'm specifically referring to chronic diseases. So some of the examples would be like chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome. In conventional medicine, they don't typically ever look for underlying causes. I mean, they'll rule out no normal causes of fatigue, and once those have been ruled out, they say, well, you've got chronic fatigue syndrome, and you know these are the treatments we'll give you. And in functional medicine, we, we don't use those labels. 
we will then look deeper and say, well, what is the underlying cause of this person's fatigue, which may be completely different than a person, another person with the same diagnosis from a conventional um, perspective of chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm, I'm wondering, what were you seeing in regular medicine that made you want to first go to integrative and then to functional medicine? Frustration. <laughs> Major frustration, yes. Uh, on, on your part or the patient's parts? Both, both. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, I was fortunate in that every practice I've ever had, I was my own boss, um, and I started my own practices. But um, now, more and more, I think overwhelming majority of physicians that come out of medical school have an enormous debt. And the, w the expense to set up an, a private practice on your own um, is, you know, just overwhelming and pretty much impossible for most physicians because they've already got enormous debt from medical school. So they're um, constricted by um, the corporation that they're working for. And they're told you have to see X number of patients uh, per hour, you know, you're lucky if you get 15 minutes. Most uh, physicians now are told they have 10 minutes, um, and they have um, certain criteria they have to follow. You know, there's certain tests they can order, other tests that aren't allowed, um, certain drugs they have to prescribe. Um, so, you know, it's not the physician's fault. It's the way medicine has gone into really corporate America and big business. And more and more I was... and the pharmaceutical industry as well. They are a huge player in this. Um, the more I, the longer I spent in conventional medicine, what I found was that um, all they looked for was for you to make an ICD-10 diagnosis, and once you made that, then what was the drug you used? So it was diagnosis and a straight line to drug. There was very, there's no time for a physician to talk about nutrition, to talk about sleep, what's interf interfering with your proper sleep, to talk about emotions, to talk about social interactions, exercise. Those are huge pieces in functional medicine and extremely important to overall health, but you, they don't have the luxury of the time to explore any of those areas with patients. So, um, and even though I was my own boss, I still had an enormous overhead because you've got all these requirements you have to meet for insurance and for Medicare and government. So you have this big staff that you have to pay for. And you, ca you also don't have the luxury, if you want to really make um, an income, of spending you know, an hour or two hours with a patient delving deeply into what's going on uh, as to the underlying cause of their health concerns. So you really saw it as a have a diagnosis, give a drug, which I guess is what's happening. So what types of things might a functional physician do instead? Well, we do, um, frequently we'll do a diet history to see, you know, what is the person eating and make recommendations there. We um, do a sleep evaluation. Um, I have, I can't tell you how many of my patients have sleep apnea. Um, so, What is sleep apnea? Well, sleep apnea or hypopnea, the two the sleep disorders, um, where the person for various reasons does not have adequate respirations during their sleep. 
So several things are happening. They um, are um, not breathing adequately enough to oxygenate their blood, so their blood oxygen level can drop. Um, one of my patients recently had critical um, levels of her uh, oxygen level during her sleep. And I mean, she'd been, she had hypertension for years and nobody diagnosed why. And I'm sure her hypertension is due to her sleep, severe sleep apnea. And additionally, people, there are three stages of sleep. And um, when you have sleep apnea, you rarely get into the deepest stage of sleep that's required for um, processing memories and storing memories. So even affecting cognitive function um, is seen, or abnormalities in func cognitive function is seen with sleep apnea. So these people get into the first or second stage of sleep, and then their blood oxygen drops, and their brain sends a signal to wake up, take a breath. And so people may have a gasping respiration after they haven't had adequate breathing, either they've stopped or their breathing has been so shallow. Um, and then they partially wake themselves up, but typically not enough that they are aware of it. So they're spending their night bouncing in and out between being just about asleep and not quite asleep um, and have terrible fatigue the next day. Do most people know about this? Do most people know that they have sleep apnea? No, uh, rarely. You know, Obviously, you know, the first thing is if a person's severely obese, that increases the risk. But I would say the majority of my patients that I recently diagnosed are not obese. Um, snoring is sometimes a sign of sleep apnea, and you have to quiz if the patient has a partner in bed, uh, you have to quiz the partner. Sometimes the partner will say, yeah, he or she has this really weird breathing they do when they're sleeping, but not always. You don't even always get that history. So I will get a sleep study on every patient that complains of fatigue. I don't, you know, I don't care if they snore or their partner tells them they've got some weird breathing because I pick up so many cases of sleep apnea um, with just that diagnosis alone. So what I'm hearing is it's when people are not breathing properly during sleep. Is, is That's sleep correct. Apnea? That's yeah. correct. Mm -hmm. And you're finding more and more people are having it. Yes. Do you know what the cause is? Well, or you what know, are the t I'm sure it's many things, but what, what, what is the range of things you see? Sometimes we don't really know what causes the sleep apnea. I mean, it, it can be obesity, of course. That affects breathing, especially the position the person's sleeping in. If they're lying on their back, their um, abdominal girth is pressing on their diaphragm, interfering just mechanically with breathing. Some people have um, problems with um, the oropharynx or the nasopharynx, so there can be tissue in the back of the throat and nasal passages that close off inappropriately um, during their sleep in various positions. Um, other people don't, we don't really have any um, idea what causes it. So do you have any recommended positions for people to sleep to get be best breathing? On their side. On their side, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. So it sounds like you'll do more to look into maybe what's causing someone's complaints. Yes. And then we do, I do extensive lab work um, looking for nutritional imbalances, 
Um, gut health is probably the number one area I always look for in people, especially if they've got autoimmune disease um, or any GI complaints, um, because the gut is sort of the entrance of you know all the nutrients into the body. Um, we also, in functional medicine, look um, deeply into toxins uh, to see if there can be some toxin affecting their health. Are you seeing more toxins now? Oh, yes. I mean, I think that was probably 10 years ago. Um, the Environmental Working Group did a study, and I may be off slightly on the number, but I think newborn babies had 144 toxins in their cord blood. So yeah, everybody has toxins. There's no question about it. You know, And it can be heavy metals. It can be petroleum products, plastic, herbicides. Um, we can test for all of that, and it just varies from person to person. Some people have more exposure. Some people have better detoxification pathways so that they're able to clear it better than other people. Mm. So what's your favorite area to work in? Is Do you have a favorite area? Oh, I, well, the uh, probably the area that I do the most work in right now because I've got additional training. After I did the um, functional medicine, I did training with um, Dr. Shoemaker. He's a physician in Maryland that um, over the past 25 years has done extensive research in chronic, uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or we call it SIRS for short. And this is a condition, again, with toxins, but it's exposure to biotoxins. Um, and mold is the big one. Um, where you get dried fragments of um, microbes from water-damaged buildings that people inhale and can cause um, very, very serious um, health problems that affect just about every system in their body. Um, so that's, I, I would say, the largest area of work that I do now is treating people with SIRS. Hmm. And what kind of treatments are there for that? Well, um, he has... A stepwise approach to addressing it. Of course, first of all, we have to ensure that where they're living and working or going to school is clean because you can't be successful in removing the toxin if the person continues to inhale more of the toxins. So this is um, an illness that's resulting from inhaling um, very, very tiny, like three micron size particles of dried fragments from water damaged material. So there doesn't have to necessarily be active growing mold. It could have been there 10 years ago and be long removed and dried. But if the building wasn't adequately remediated, there's still those particles circulating. So you first of all have to identify if the um, building is safe and um, there's special labs that will uh, do those tests for people. Um, and then the next step is, um, well, you have to make the diagnosis. So, you know, that's obviously the first step. And once you've made the diagnosis, then um, you use binders to remove, start removing the toxins from the person's um, gut. The toxins are released in the bile and they're so small, they typically are just reabsorbed um, back into the circulation. So we use binders that irreversibly bind the toxin, and they're removed then when the person goes to the bathroom. 
You are listening to Tutu's Talk Story and expert Karen Johnson, who is a functional medicine expert, talking about how to remove toxins. And we'll hear more when we come back from station uh, break. You're listening to KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. Join the Artist Co-op Music Lab. Enrollment interviews are now being conducted for the Music Lab at the Artist Cooperative on Friday afternoons between 12 and 2 p.m. Interested students should bring their parents for the interview. The curriculum is based on the Jazz Standard Ballad. To make an appointment, call Frank at 808-333-8026. For more information, see NOCO Theater on Facebook. This is Isla Allgood of Women's Voices. Tune in on Monday and Wednesday from 4 till 6 p.m. to listen to women from around the world, around Hawaii, songs with positive and empowering messages on KNKRLP 96.1 FM. Monday and Wednesday, 4 to 6 p.m. Your bones are the trees in the forest. Aloha, this is Holly Allgood on Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm here today talking to Dr. Karen Johnson. And if anybody has a question out there, she is an expert in functional medicine. You can give us a call at 884-KNKR or 884-5657. And I want to remind everybody that the opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect those of KNKR or their affiliates. Well, Karen, we were talking a little bit about SIRS before this, and for people just joining us, could you remind us again what that acronym stands for? Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, secondary to exposure to uh, biotoxins. How would somebody even know that that was something that they might be having issues with? Well, um, that's difficult because I would say very few conventional physicians are aware of it. Um, and the typical person often that I see has been sick for 5, 10. I think my last patient had been sick for 14 years with the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. So if people have a multitude of um, symptoms that don't fit any particular pattern for conventional medicine, um, and they've gone to many, many doctors, and uh, usually they're told they need to go and see a psychiatrist because um, all the standard lab tests that you know are done um, routinely, you know, in a standard medical practice are normal. Um, you should have a high index of suspicion that you might have SIRS. And then, is there a test that that confirms that diagnosis? It's a process. So first of all, you have to have a history of exposure, which isn't difficult because the majority of buildings in the country have had some water damage. Um, Hawaii, obviously, with the humidity, we have you know microbial growth just because of the humidity without having a leak in the ceiling or you know a leak in the plumbing. 
Um, and then you have to have enough symptoms in uh, various systems to um, proceed. So there's a questionnaire of 13 different clusters. So there's, I don't know, probably 20-some symptoms. And they're very diverse um, that uh, cover the multi-symptom, multi-system illness. So if a person has um, eight out of those 13 clusters, then we proceed with um, a couple other tests. So one is a visual contrast sensitivity test uh, that the person can do online. Um, and it looks at uh, your ability to discern contrast. So it's a little different than visual acuity. Um, because with SIRS, there's uh, interruption of um, adequate flow to the vasculature and the retina, and you can't um, discern um, contrast as well. So it's a, a unique test, and people with SIRS, especially if they have ongoing exposure, uh, routinely will fail that test. Mm. So it, it wouldn't be anything, you know, with respect to needing glasses or that type of eye problem. A person wouldn't know it, likely, unless they did the test. Um, and then there's um, a series of blood tests we do to look at um, cytokines. We've probably heard a lot about that with, with COVID-19 now, but there are certain uh, cytokine just means cell signaling molecule that uh, are elevated in SIRS, and that's what causes a lot of the symptoms. Um, and different hormones that are completely out of balance with SIRS. There's a genetic um, test that we do. And this is a, um, a very useful test because it will explain why um, there can be two people living in a house and one person has SIRS and the other person's living in this water damaged house and feels fine and thinks their partner is crazy. Mm. And when you so do. So that can happen. Oh, yes. So yes. That it's a situation that doesn't affect everyone the same. Correct. 24% of the population have the genetic inability to mount an antibody response against the toxin. So that's an important statement. And just backing up to what it means is that people are born with that gene, but people generally aren't born or don't have SIRS when they're a young child. So typically, we see a double insult to the immune system. So the person either can have some serious infection like mono or pneumonia or a bad cold or surgery or divorce, something that significantly stresses their immune system at the same time they're exposed to these mold toxins or these microbial toxins. And that seems to flip the switch. So mm -hmm. it can happen at age 20 or 30 or 50, whatever. Um, so it has to be the double insult to the immune system. And those people then um, can't clear that toxin if they've got that um, HLA type. That's the type of gene we're looking for. And what that means is that we've got two immune systems. There's the innate immune system, which is what we were born with. And that immune system is our first line of defense against any invader in the body. And so when that um, system is activated, that produces all these cytokines. That's what's happening in COVID-19 as well. And it's trying to slow down that invasion while our immune system can make antibodies to gobble up those toxins. And they're sort of like Pac-Man going around gobbling up the toxins. So if you have that HLA type that can't mount the antibody response, 
that innate immune system keeps firing and firing and firing because you're not able to clear the toxin from your body. And that's what makes people so sick. If you can imagine feeling like you were coming down with the flu for 10 years, because when you start coming down with a cold or a virus or flu, it's not the virus or flu itself that's causing you to feel so sick. It's your immune system that's mounting this defense to try to clear those toxins. So it must be a tremendous relief when people find yes. an answer to what's been causing this fatigue. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And I'm also hearing a really good example why it's important. We hear all the time that stress is not good for your health, but this is a, a really good example of where it sounds like if you have additional stress in uh, that it can trigger it can trigger you having a bad uh, response. Yeah, stress is an, has a negative effect on your immune system. I mean, when we're stressed, especially chronically, our body adrenal glands release cortisol. And if you give a person cortisone, we know that they're more susceptible to infections. So same thing happens if our body is making excess cortisol as a result of chronic stress. So that damages the immune system um, because of the uh, ongoing stress. So it's, so well, I, I hope that helps a lot of people out there, even just understanding that we all respond differently to toxins and you can have multiple people in the same house. And as you pointed out, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of homes here that have some level of mildew or mold and people do seem to have much different reactions. Yes, so the other 76% of the population may say, yeah, this place smells a little musty, but their antibodies clear the toxin from their body so they don't get sick. It's the same as if you have, you know, you've received an immunization for chickenpox. You get, you're exposed to the virus, you don't get chickenpox because you've got antibodies to clear it. So that's what's happening in 76% of the people that don't have that susceptibility. So let's go back to the sleep apnea. I think that's another thing that I, I know. I, we have a couple of young uh, kids, young kids. <laughs> they're, you know, they're young adults, I should say. And it seems to be a pattern of young adults staying up all night more so than what I remembered when I was a young adult. And I worry about them not getting enough sleep. What do you have to say about that? That's true. I mean, you know, I don't know if they have sleep apnea, but... Um, no, they just have in, video games. Inadequate, <laughs> inadequate sleep is definitely another stress. So that, you know, is stressing our immune system and stressing our health. And, you know, again... Um, you're resulting, causing with video games what we call sleep phase disorders. So that means that normally, you know, we, you know, haven't been that long, you know, it's not that many centuries that we've had uh, electricity, probably not even, I don't know when. Two centuries. Yeah, not even very long. So normally our, um, from an evolutionary standpoint, our bodies are wired to when dusk starts, uh, we start getting sleepy because our body starts producing melatonin and our cortisol level drops. And then we go to bed and we sleep. 
And as a morning comes, our cortisol level rises. We go out in the bright light. That shuts melatonin down even more, and we are awake. Now, if you're exposed to uh, any type of screen, um, you know, unless you can put it in night mode and use blue light blocking glasses, you've got blue light coming into your uh, retina and into your body, and that shuts melatonin off. So, you know, if you're sitting in front of a screen all the time, you may not get sleepy because you're not producing melatonin, and it's really messing with your diurnal rhythm, your day and night sleep pattern. Mm -hmm. I was just reading recently that they say now the the brain gets cleansed while we sleep. Is that, yes, you, yeah? That's right. Um, and that's part of the problem with the sleep apnea is that we, um, um, let's, how would I describe it, is um, sort through our memories um, in the deepest stage of sleep um, that people with sleep apnea never get into. So um, there is definitely an association between cognitive impairment and sleep apnea as well. Um, that's another area of training I, I did with um, dealing with cognitive impairment. But if you never get into that uh, deep stage of sleep, um, you can't consolidate memories. So what I mean by that is there's certain things that happen in our day that are important. Other things that are not important, like you may remember uh, what happened on a special day, but you may not remember what you ate for dinner 19 days ago. You know, that's, you know, s those things you forget. Um, so when we're trying to remember things, if you're not consolidating your memories, your, your brain is muddled, literally, because it's got all this stuff and nothing is sorted and put in a filing cabinet where it can be stored and kept for retrieval and discarded things that are, are not important. So and can, can that be an issue for people of all ages? I think people mm -hmm. tend to think that it's just older people who maybe have uh, muddled brain issues. No, it's all, it's all ages. We all need a certain time in that deep stage of sleep to consolidate our memories. And, you know, I wonder sometimes if, you know, even some of the ADD and ADHD may not be related to, you know, sleep disturbance and, you know, use of video equipment and um, blue light exposure. Um, there's many reasons for that mm -hmm. as well, but um, sleep is extremely important. Are and there other disruptors other than sleep apnea and blue light? Um, yes. Uh, if you eat too late, that interferes with sleep, so you should allow at least three hours um, between um, your last meal and eating. You know, bedtime snacks are not useful for good sleep. Uh, obviously, stimulants can affect different people in different ways. Some people um, are very sensitive to caffeine or other stimulants that can disrupt sleep. Um, exercise or lack of it can affect sleep. If people exercise too late in the evening, it can adversely affect their sleep. Or if people don't get enough exercise at all, that adversely affects their sleep. Um, stress affects sleep. I mean, people that are upset about something, you know, I think we've all had those situations where you had a really stressful event and you don't sleep for a couple of nights. I can't sleep when I get excited. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know it's... Same thing. 
because that's <laughs> adrenaline. I mean, you know, if um, adrenaline is your sympathetic nervous system and um, parasympathetic, you have to have activated for sleep. We call that the rest and digest mm-hmm. system. So you need mm-hmm. that to sleep. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very interesting. So what other kinds of things are you seeing now that... I, I would think it's it's such a shift from going from conventional medicine to the integrative medicine to the functional medicine. H- has it shifted the type of patients you see? Um, yes. Um, however, I I did try to, you know, you can't unlearn what you know. So when I was still in an insurance-based model in Oregon, I mean, I was still really utilizing functional medicine. Um, but getting very frustrated because I didn't have the time I needed um, to spend with the patients. Um, But now, um, because of what I've specialized in, I have specific patients, so patients that are very uh, well-educated as to, you know, what's going on with their body and have done a lot of research online and figured out that they probably have SIRS, for example, or they've got um, SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so people seek me out because they want a functional medicine practitioner because they know that those are the physicians that are trained to address those problems. So so tell us about SIBO. Well, SIBO is also very common. Um, in conventional medicine, it's called irritable bowel syndrome and generally treated with, you know, antispasmodics or laxatives, depending upon if the person has IBS diarrhea or IBS constipation. But SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it's a condition that um, the person has overgrowth of bacteria in their small bowel where they don't belong, and those bacteria then uh, utilize the fiber that's meant to go to the colon bacteria or our microbiome, and they um, produce gas when they digest um, the uh, fiber or complex carbohydrates and cause gas, bloating, discomfort, and depending upon the type of bacteria can either result in constipation or diarrhea in the person and a great deal of um, discomfort and um, people often have severely restricted diets because um, they have more and more foods that um, cause significant symptoms, so they try to avoid those foods and get into a really nutritionally deficient uh, situation. And how is that treated? That's treated with, um, well, it's a different phases. So first of all, you would use either antibiotics um, that aren't absorbed, they just stay in the colon to treat the bacteria there, or you can use herbal antimicrobials as well. Um, there's an elemental diet that is um, something you would just eat that, or it's po- it's a powder actually that you drink, um, and that's all you consume for two weeks. So you're literally starving the bacteria by um, just taking the basic elements of your protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Um, and then you um, there's a specific diet the person follows where you are restricting those types of carbohydrates that feed the bacteria. And then you have to also reestablish what we call in, in medicine the migrating motor complex. So that's basically a fancy word for your stomach growling when you're hungry. And a lot of people with SIBO don't typically get hungry. 
may notice their stomach gurgling, but they don't notice it growling. And the growling is, you know, that sound you hear before lunch at a meeting across the room from somebody who's really hungry. (laughs) Very different than gurgling. And what that is, is when your stomach's empty, your small bowel is flushing all of the liquid and undigested food and bacteria into the colon. So it's basically cleaning the small bowel. And if that doesn't happen, your small bowel is basically a stagnant pool of all this material that is just a wonderful um, broth for microbes to grow in. So you have to get that established with different either herbal or other agents to um, get your um, migrating motor complex working again. And it's a long process. Depending upon how long the person's had SIBO, um, it can um, affect how long it takes to basically get through this. Do they usually have a different diet at the end? At the end, the goal is to uh, hopefully, once you've resolved SIBO, um, you know, after a number of months, to get them back onto a regular, obviously healthy, organic diet. But you don't want them to be on a, a long-term restrictive diet. So I, I think I was telling you last week we were talking to a, a, a famous vegan chef, and she was talking about uh, how important she felt. Of course, she's a chef diet is to our uh, happiness, but also to our health. Is that something you look a lot at also? Oh, yes. Food is so important for so many people. I mean, you know, eating is a social event, or it used to be before COVID anyways. (laughs) And, you know, people enjoy food, so you don't want to restrict their diet, and you want to make it tasty and enjoyable. Yes, Mm -hmm. it should be happy. Mm -hmm. Because if it's not, if you're unhappy when you're eating, then you're in sympathetic tone. So none Mm -hmm. of your digestive juices are flowing and you're not Mm -hmm. digesting your food properly either. So Mm -hmm. eating should always be in a relaxed, happy fashion. And I didn't mean just for being happy, but especially for being healthy. Oh, yes. Yeah. And are there, uh, it seems like that's something that you had education with as a physician in the integrative medicine and in the uh, functional medicine, but it sounds like it's not really part of traditional medical education. No, and I still, it wasn't when I was in training. I actually have always been interested in nutrition because we had what was called an option during one of our years in medical school, and I chose to do nutrition for my option um, because it's something that I've always felt to be important. But apart from that, I would have had no training whatsoever in nutrition throughout my entire medical school training. What is the biggest thing you you think we all need to know that we don't know about nutrition? Or can you give us some words of wisdom about, that you've learned over the years? Well, I think the important thing about tr- nutrition is that there isn't one diet for everybody. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Vegan doesn't fit for some people, and Keto don't fit for other people, and etc. But I think everybody should eat whole foods. Uh, I think Michael Pollan, a very famous author who writes a lot on nutrition, I said he's. I think he went. I think it was him that said you shouldn't eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognize. <laughs> you know, which means you want to eat real whole food, organic if possible. I mean, I'm a big believer in the Dirty Dozen, which is um, the environmental working group that lists, I think it's 13 foods actually, that you should never eat unless they're uh, organic. 
and they have a clean 15, which are 15 foods that, um, you know, if cost is an issue um, or availability is an issue, that they're really not a problem because pesticides aren't typically used on those 15 foods. Right, or the foods themselves don't absorb the toxins. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Are there anything? Is there a, are any of these foods locally that ring a bell that uh, you would recommend that we can get locally? Oh, avocados. Avocados. Yeah, yeah. avocados seem to have been become quite the rage. Um, I, not only for health, but it seems like I was just uh, there's a. There's a a Netflix documentary on avocados saying that the drug cartels in Mexico are now growing avocados. (laughs) Good for them. (laughs) They're doing something useful. (laughs) (laughs) Because they've become so profitable. Okay. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Now, well, they're very healthy. They're high in fiber, and they've got a very, very healthy fat profile in them. So... Um, avocado oil and avocados are, you know, really um, good, healthy foods. And there's a lot of them available right now. I know. Hawaii is amazing. I mean, the varieties, I mean, and they taste, each one variety tastes a little bit different, different texture, different color. No, it's, it's great. Yes, the foods here are wonderful. So we only have a few more minutes. Is there anything that you think is particularly important that, that you find most people aren't aware of until they've met with you? Uh, I think avoiding um, exposure, apart from nutrition, I mean, and sleep, those I think we've touched on, but I think to my last point is avoiding toxins. You know, so many people, um, again, what you eat, what you drink, I mean, you know, drinking um, tap water may be a problem for some people, depending upon where it comes from. and uh, what you put on your skin. So we get toxins from what we breathe, what we consume, and what goes on our skin. So um, a lot of people aren't aware of that, and I think particularly women, you know, that use a lot of makeup or personal care products uh, are not aware of how many um, toxins they can absorb into their body. You know, you can put a tiny little patch on your body for hormones, and it raises your hormone level. And that patch is, you know, just maybe less than an inch in size. So if you can imagine covering your body with sunscreen or lotion or something every day, and you're putting it over your entire body, if there's chemicals in those products, how much toxin you're actually putting directly into your circulation. Because it doesn't even go, you know, through your gut and your liver to assist in detoxifying it before it gets into your circulation when you're putting it on your skin. So I think a lot of people may not even be aware of that. So what we put on our skin goes right into our circulation. Correct. Mm -hmm. The same way as, you know, little prescription um, hormone patches or any other um, prescription topical medication goes into your circulation directly. Do you have any recommendations for things people should be using or avoid uh, any things on labels people should avoid when they're getting personal care products for their skin? Yes, again, to the Environmental Working Group, which is a wonderful website. They have um, an area for home cleaning products, so you can look there to find what's safe because that also is an area of toxic exposure. And um, they have a site called Skin Deep, 
And it's lovely because you can download the app onto your smartphone. And then when you're in the store, you can scan your soap or your shampoo or your lotion or whatever, uh, the barcode, and it will tell you um, if it's green or red. So it rates things from a 1 to 10. Um, not everything's in there, but they've got probably hundreds of thousands of different products. So there's a wide variety of um, things you can look for. Some of the lower numbers, like two and three, may not be a problem. They just may be because some people are sensitive or allergic to an ingredient. Um, but that's a wonderful resource for mm. people. And if it's not listed, you can actually type in the ingredients if you want to you know, type in all the ingredients in a product into their website and it will tell you if it's safe or not. Oh, that's wonderful advice. And uh, how can people learn more about functional medicine? Well, you can go to the Institute for Functional Medicine website. That's where I did my um, training and certification. Um, and there's a wealth of information there. And um, you know, it lists practitioners if you wanted to find a practitioner. Um, and, um, and what if people wanted to learn more about you personally? Do you have a website you would be willing to share with us? I do. Uh, it's KarenDJohnsonMD.com. KarenDJohnsonMD.com. And that would also tell some more about functional medicine or how to get in touch with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, on my website I talk about functional medicine, integrative medicine, herbal medicine. Um, it's all, all on there. Well, we didn't talk much about herbal medicine. Is there anything? It just seems to me there's so many. I know in, at my property that's what seems to grow best is herbs. Is that uh, is that something? Uh, well, there's some people who talk about herbal medicine, but are you using local ingredients at all? Um, well, I don't use them sourced locally um, because you know you have to have a you know if I was going to use them for patients, I'd have to get a major license to you know prepare and sell them. But I do use a lot of herbal preparations that are made by you know various um, supplement companies. Yes. So um, herbs work very differently than uh, prescription medications. Prescription medications I uh, liken to um, sort of a, a missile where it's got you know one target and it's going directly for that target and it's very powerful, whereas herbal medicine um, has a very broad approach and generally more gentle approach. Um, I say it's like the difference between taking a vitamin C tablet, which is very targeted, versus eating an orange. So you get many, many other nutrients that work with the vitamin C in the orange. So that's what herbal medicine does. You get a lot of things that work together uh, to accomplish the goal rather than just a very targeted approach. Well, and it sounds like it's a lot more gentle on the body as well. That's true. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen Johnson. It's been a delight chatting with you today. I'm so delighted you're part of our Javi community. And I want to uh, say aloha out there and goodbye. This is Holly Allgood and KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala.